0: This podcast is sponsored by Uncana, Trusted Natural Solutions. Uncana is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran-owned and operated, the Uncana team is actively fighting for DoD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag optnatural. Uncana is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code Mentors the Number Four MIL at checkout at Puncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military Disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. Thanks again to everyone supporting us on the podcast through Patreon. Patreon allows our listeners an opportunity to contribute to the podcast and allow us to bring you great guests and content each week. Thank you to all of our patrons and a special shout out to Jonathan Lambert for being our largest donor. You too can become a patron by visiting patreon.com mentors the number four M-I-O. This is The Mentors for Military podcast. I believe you're the very first MARSOC that we've ever had on the show. Of course, we've had, you know, Christian, you know, recon guy and stuff, but never MARSOC. I think there are a lot of people out there, quite frankly, including myself, that don't really know the pipeline.
1: Again, thank you for having me. I I appreciate it. Um, I joined the Marine Corps out of Texas. You know, I, uh, I remember... It all started back. I mean, it sounds sounds cliche, but I remember watching the invasion um, happen when I was in high school, sitting in biology class and like watching, watching the push into Iraq. And I was like, that sounds pretty cool, you know. And um, it was kind of a little deeper than that because I came from a very uh, family that was very academically intense, we should say, you know, and I was, you know, they were pushing me towards a service academy. Um, hmm. And just uh, to be honest, I was just kind of done with school, you know, and in addition to the military kind of being my ticket out, I was, um, I kind of, kind of thought that not just the military, but I was watching all the ground pounders on the invasion. And I was like, that's it. That's a ticket. Like, that's for me. Uh, then I kind of, That was around my sophomore year of high school. And so then I kind of did some more research, you know, and was bought into everything I read where, like, the Marines, they're the best. This book told me they were the best. So, obviously, yeah, obviously, (laughs) they're the best. And so um, that's that's it for me. You know, like one – one news clip <laughs> that stuck out in my mind was a big firefight at night and they were recording through NDGs. And I was like, Star Wars, you know, yeah. it's real. So as soon as I graduated high school, um, Moseyed on down to the recruiter. And, uh, actually I stopped in the Navy first, you know, and I was like, um, I want to be a, I want to be a seal, you know, again, reading all the <laughs> believing all the, (laughs) I know (laughs) believing all the propaganda Um, and they had me take a practice as VAB and I guess I did pretty well on it because they saw the results and um, they were like so there's actually a limit to how smart you can be and join the seals and I was like what no way and they're like yeah so what we're gonna do for you just you check out this nuclear engineering program we have, you know, you get to be on a submarine. And I was like,
2: I was like, no, no
1: way. Absolutely not. (laughs) And then uh, they were like, plus you wear glasses. So automatic disqualification. And I was like, ah, I don't believe you. Um, So the the, the Navy recruiter like gave me five bucks and he's like, go watch a movie, you know, like, and then come back and talk and so i took his five dollars went next door to the marine recruiting office and was like i saw a uh i saw a, a recon poster um,
0: he was christian uh,
1: yes yes it was he was drinking a cup of coffee at the same time guilty, guilty.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and i was like that's what i want to do um but at the same time um I still kind of wanted to go to college, kind of. So my grand grand plan was I'll go through the pipeline, um, join the reserves, go through the pipeline, come back, do college. Um, And I was like, yep, that's what I'm going to do. And then after college, I'll go active duty. Um, Well, after I finished the pipeline, um, you know, boot camp, infantry, BRC, airborne seer, all of that. I came back and all of a sudden was like dumped into civilian life again. And I was like, this is, I don't like this. This is not okay. You know, I had a really good time in the military. So I kept trying to trying to get back into active duty. And at that time, the, uh, you couldn't do it from the reserves. So Hmm. I kind of, yeah, it was, it was, it was weird. Um, I kind of, so I kind of reserve bummed it up for a while, you know, and, Just went to school after school after school until, when was it? It was about 2010. So I joined in 06 and around 2009, start of 2010, um, word came down that 3rd Reconnaissance Battalion was gearing up for an Afghan deployment. And they were like, they need snipers. Do you want to go? And I was like, Absolutely. Yeah, you were no, already exactly.
0: sniper qualified already at this point then. Right. Okay.
1: Correct. Yep. Um, and it wasn't even a question in my mind. I was like, yes. Yes, absolutely. I want to go. So did the workup. Met the guys from Third Recon in, in 29 Palms for, what was it called back then?
2: Um, Mojave Viper. I don't even know. It changes equally. <laughs> yeah. All I remember is what we called it. Cats. I think it was before that.
1: Yeah, we, I, I called it Mojave Earthworm or something like that because it was super anticlimactic and terrible out there. It was in the winter, so it was cold. Didn't think a desert could get that cold, but it, it got pretty chilly. Um, had a, a really kinetic deployment. Um, we hit Sangin Valley um, on May 18th, 2011. And then next day, May 19th, that was my birthday, and I remember uh, we were on Camp Leatherneck still, and took mortars. Um, so I was like, "Ah, all right, right on," you know. A couple of rounds, no big deal. And I remember walking to from from my barracks to the recon compound on Camp Leatherneck, and then all of a sudden, all of these HIMARS go start going off all at once. Um, I think about 15 of them or something like that. And you, you can see the trail. They're all going, they're all going the same direction. And I was like, wow, you know, someone's getting after it. Um, so I make it to the compound and I run into someone there. I think it was the ops chief. because like, just see all those high go off? And I was like, yeah, that's pretty crazy. Bunch of telephone poles flying through the sky, you know. Um, and he's like, where those things are going, you're going Tomorrow. And I was like, wow, I guess this just got real, you know. And um, that was about how that deployment kicked off. And it was, it was a great time. Um, came back from that one in December of 2011. Um, and then, again, didn't want to go back to a regular life. So I hopped on a couple of, like, training deployments down to Mexico, and we lived down right by the coast on a little Mexican base. Um, and I ran a sniper school for Mexican Marines and special forces. You know, um, it was their last stop on their way up to the border states of Mexico where they were going to combat the cartels up there.
0: Mm, okay. um,
1: yeah. And so that uh, that I, like being in a instructor after coming back from a kinetic deployment it was was a good change of pace you know because it i i enjoyed the work um the mexicans were very very receptive of it and i knew that they were going to put it to good use all the things that myself and the other guys with me were teaching them and then some of them would come back and we would talk with them and they actually did put it to really good use um And then somewhere around that time, a message came out saying that MARSOC was accepting applications from the reserves.
0: Now, all of this time up to this point, you had been doing more like active reserve stints. So six months or longer type of setups.
1: Yeah. Okay. Correct. Correct. So you,
0: you at least had a paying gig you know, type of thing. So you were right. running it well enough where you were at least trying to make a, a decent job salary and, and that type of thing. Plus you're earning active duty um, along the way as well, rather Correct. than just one week in a month, two weeks a year type of thing.
2: Right.
1: And that that was, I hated that, you know. Yeah. Um, it might work for some of the support jobs in the military, but I'm a firm believer that if you're in anything having to do with the infantry like that, that needs to be your profession. You know, it's it's not something you can do part time and get away with it. Mm -hmm. Um, you have to, you have to make it your life if you want to actually be, be good at it. And so, um, yeah, that was just part of the way I, I validated that to to myself, I guess, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't go active duty. Marine Corps just wasn't taken reserve to go active. So it just made the best of it that I could.
0: Up to this point, let's see if I'm tracking well. You already had your Airborne, BRC, Sniper School. I'm assuming then that you also um, maybe even had Halo or um, Scuba or something like that as well. Uh, Some of the additional schools or what were some of the additional schools that you went to up to this point?
1: Uh, Let's see. Um, BRC. Airborne Seer. Cut that part. Um, And Sniper. Sniper, Foreign Weapons Instructor, uh, Breacher, Mountain Communications. I think the full name is like Mountain Communications Command and Control. Something ridiculous like that. Um, It's kind of just a gut check in the mountains with a radio thrown into it. Um, uh, Let's see. Dive. I've been to Combatant Diver. Um... Yeah, and then sniper. I had to take I, I had to go back to sniper school. I failed the first time in 08 in stalking um, and then I went back in 09 and passed that time. But um yeah, so I'd I'd been to a handful. Didn't make it to Halo. Um, those were those seats were few and far between and mm-hmm. ge- generally not for reserve reserves. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: So MARSOC put a uh, recruitment uh, announcement out there.
1: Correct. And I was like, this is my golden ticket. This is it. Um, in addition to that, the war was winding down for conventional forces, and I was like, this is my ticket to stay relevant yeah. in this war. So I uh, I trained up, did most of my training down in Mexico on these uh, deployment little training stints, um, and then came back. Um, from my last trip down there, went to dive school, um, and then essentially rolled right from dive school to, um, Marsox assessment and selection course.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, at least you were physically fit when you got done with dive school. Um, but at the same token, you were probably pooped. I would imagine
1: a little bit. Yeah. Like that's not an easy course just by the nature of it, you know, um, (laughs) And but, uh, plus side of it, I was well acquainted with the cold. Yeah. So those winter winter dive courses are not fun, not even a little bit of fun. So oh
2: God, it's miserable.
1: Yeah, it's just awful. And
2: there's no warming up at all. <laughs> no, <laughs> like, it does not matter what you do. You're just no, it's like just, 10k, you're like, dude, why? This is this why is why awful. 10K? Like, yeah, like, <laughs> 5 hours later. Yeah. yeah, you're still in the water. God forbid, tide tides coming in. I was going to say t-
1: tide shifted, you know, yeah. and now you're barely moving at all.
2: Yeah, it's I mean the cool thing was is like the uh the jellyfish with the bioluminescence on them. I thought that was fun. You have a lot of time to look oh. at the fish on the table. Yeah. 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 Nothing else to look at.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think the worst part was the budweiser line. You and nine other people on a single rope. That you wasn't get- big. Miserable. Yeah, getting kicked in the face with fins, masks getting ripped off, and
2: I think we switched drivers a few times too. So then it was like, wow, okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And then just <laughs> zigzagging across the channel because no one knows how to use a tack board properly. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah, just oh, awful.
2: Slide down. My bad. Awful.
1: <laughs> yeah. So went to um, assessment and selection, um, and then was picked up from there. I had just enough time to go back to San Antonio, um, pack up all my garbage, um, sold all my furniture except for my couch. I couldn't find anyone to buy my couch, so I gave it to my next-door neighbor for a six-pack of beer um, and then threw a couple of things in the back of my truck and then headed back to Camp Lejeune for the individual training course.
0: So what was uh, the length of the assessment of selection and what does it kind of entail? I mean is it very much like any assessment of selection where you're really going through and they're pushing you to the limits and you know trying to weed out the good from the bad type of thing I'm assuming but I mean if you can go into a little bit more detail it might help those who are wondering how it might differ from other assessment selection courses say from the army you know or whatever.
1: I don't really think there's any keys to the castle but any semblance of that. I obviously can't tell, but, um, That's a
2: bummer. everyone's looking for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I really thought you got it, but well, shit. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. I'll just do it the hard way there.
1: <laughs> so assessment and selection for Mars is essentially two phase. There is what's called ASPOC, um, assessment and selection, Preparation something course, I think it was. Um, And that's essentially a selection to get selected to go to selection. Um, Bunch of cats show up for that. Um, I think around 200 showed up when I went through. And it's geared to prepare you physically um, and mentally to survive selection. But at the same time you're still expected to perform and through the numerous different, different physical events that they put you through. Um, there's obviously rocks. Um, there's a little bit of land nav thrown in there. Um, things of that nature, uh, regular PT events and, and, and whatnot. Um, but you're still being assessed even though it's quote unquote practice, you're still being assessed. Yeah. Um, so you have to do well there. And then once you get picked up from there, they load you up on buses and you go to the actual assessment and selection. And I haven't been through the Army's um, assessment and selection. But from what I understand of it, talking to friends who are on the Army side of the house and reading books and whatnot, um, it's geared very similarly to that. Again, more land nav, more rucking, you know.
0: Yeah, and and a lot of, I, if I remember correctly, and I think um, if Scott Kinder were on here, he was one of the kind of fathers of MARSOC. He was a, a Green Beret, and it was really a lot of the special forces on the Army side that helped stand up MARSOC, as I understand it. So I would see that there would be some similarities, at least, in the very beginning.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Um, there were a lot of civilian contractors that were helping there too, like as, as cadre, um, and the vast, the vast majority of them were from the army. Right. And, um, and again, from what I understand when, when Marsak was creating the, the course, um, they had a lot of outside help and lessons learned from, from the army side of the house with how they do things, what they're looking for psychologically, physically, mentally, you know? Um, and so they actually, it wasn't, they may have initially, been something that they had to put together quickly to meet the um, Department of Defense directives, but um, over time, they really put a lot of effort into making sure that the individual that they selected at the end was exactly what they were looking for, Um, and from the time I spent there, uh, they seemed to do a pretty good job of making sure that the people that made it through are exactly the kind of people that you want to work with.
0: So what's so, the duration of MARSOC's um, assessment and selection?
1: Soup to nuts from pre-selection all the way through selection. It's about six weeks. Okay. Yeah. So, again, fairly similar to how the Army does it.
0: Right, right. And so once you're, once you're done with that, I'm assuming that you still have all the, the rocks and, you know, like you said, the PT and, and the other aspects and such, teamwork, um, those types of things. But at the conclusion of this, what's the next step? So,
1: um, for me, it was, there was a class, let's see, I got done in February. Um, and there was a class picking up in April
2: and you really love those winter courses, huh? Ah, dude, I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) Winter dive to winter selection. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It
1: was awful. I hate the cold too. Um, yes, you do. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, There was a, after selection, there's an actual training pipeline where they teach you everything you need to know to be a contributing member on a team. Um, And that was called the individual training course or simply ITC.
0: Now, um, at this point, are they changing or designating an MOS or is it, or a specific skill, I should say, within MARSOC? Or is it more of you're just learning a lot of different skills?
1: So that was interesting. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. The so the army way of doing things is that they will get everyone, um, you know, trained uh, trained up to some to some degree in small unit tactics. You know, make a baseline for everyone to work off of, and then they farm you out to all their 18 series specialties. That's right. So so you become really good at communications or medicine or engineering tasks and and whatnot. Exactly. Yep. Excuse me. So the Marine Corps took a different approach. Um, And to be honest, I kind of like this approach better. Um, They took a little bit of calm. They took, they took medicine and they took explosives. They took a bit from H from each 18 series and they incorporated that into their, their training course. So everyone's trained, um to a (laughs) high level over multiple aspects yeah and then once you get to your team then you deep dive whatever specialty you're going to be a part of
0: gotcha okay Um, yeah so so you're kind of a jack of all trades at the initial stage of it and then when you get there it's more of needs of the marine corps based on the team that you're assigned to
1: correct yeah needs of the team exactly yeah um so ITC when I went through was broken down into several different phases. Um, and again, I was talking to some of my friends who are instructing there now, and it's it's a continually evolving animal. Um, they're always tweaking it, always making it better, yeah. and always and always they just want to produce the best product they can. Um, but when I went through phase zero, was kind of a the swift kicking a dick phase. You know, that's where all the pool stuff happened. Um, you were going on death runs at zero dark and stupid, you know, with at a at a dead sprint the, the entire way. Um, but they went over they went over different different skills that you were going to use throughout the entire course. Um, knot tying, radios, multiple different radios. How to send stuff over Tac Chat and HPW, um, Satcom, um, HF. You know. Um, UHF, all that, all that stuff. Uh, they went over medicine, um, call for fire, you know, things like that. And then they wanted to create that baseline because these were skills that you're going to use throughout the rest of the course and apply them in different, in different scenarios that you're go- going to encounter. Um, after phase zero was done, we moved on to phase one, and that was if memory serves me correctly, uh, small unit tactics. So that's where you get into like green side patrolling, patrolling in in the woods, you know, Um, not sending report formats or anything like that, but it's based heavily on the Ranger handbook, you know, how to set up a patrol base, how to conduct an ambush, you know, what movement formations you use through X, Y, or Z terrain. We did amphibious operations. You know, this is a zodiac. This is how you do nautical navigation. You know, um, a lot of finning, a lot of boat work. This is how you do a beach infill into a patrol. Stuff like that.
0: Um, now, you must have been breezing right through this, just coming from recon, and the fact that you just came from dive school as well. So, I, I'm I'm thinking that you're you're walking into this, and many of these stages are pretty much good for you, or and I'm curious too, was, was the cadre looking at you and going, Oh, look at this guy. Um,
1: it was, it was very recon skills centric, you know? So like I was happy for that because I mean, I wasn't sucking hind tit, you know, trying to, trying to keep up or anything like that. But, um, I mean, some of the guys were having a little tougher time with it cause they came from the band or motor transport or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a good opportunity to to help people along the way, and through that build unit cohesion because they had you divided up into teams and you stayed with that team throughout the whole course for the most part. So, I mean, yes, it was it was easy, but in the sense that I knew what to do. But that doesn't take away the physical aspect of it. I mean, like no one likes to do a 2K fin yeah. in the morning, you know, during well, during. Speak,
2: sh- speak for yourself, then. <laughs> <laughs> I happen to be a big fan of 2K fins in the morning. So. I, yeah, I bet. Yeah. i was about to go do another one today, my afternoon 2K. I can't believe you would say that. Um, and, yeah, no one likes patrolling
1: through Camp Lejeune <laughs> with a 100-pound pack. You know, it's just not fun any way you cut it. So, um, yeah, it was, it was stuff I'd done before, but it was still just a suck fest at times. let's see, after that, at the end of that phase, there was a, there was a big culminating exercise and that's called Raider Spirit. And that was kind of just uh, a massive patrol X, you know, where you stay out. I think we stayed out for 12 days, something like that. And you're just living out in Camp Lejeune wilderness and you just get order after order after order coming down, move here, do an area reconnaissance over here, move here, conduct an ambush, conduct a raid, you know, and you're just always moving around the, and they put different guys in different leadership positions, just like in ranger school to see how they do. And again, you're continually being evaluated. But I mean, at some point, you know, regardless of how many times you do it, Um, like the trees start talking to you, you know, and like that bush over there sprouts some legs and starts running away and just start hallucinating your ass off. And yeah, that's just something you got to deal with at that point.
2: So falling asleep while standing up.
1: Yes. 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 (laughs) That even happens, happened to me. Like you're walking and then all of a sudden you wake up and you're in the middle of nowhere and you're like, Hey, Bob. (laughs) Hey. <laughs> and yeah, it was not fun, not fun at all.
0: Um, Sounds like so much of this, though, incorporated Army Ranger School, you know, SFAS and Q, the SUT and some of the other stuff that you were just describing. There's so many different elements here that have been kind of, you know, meshed together.
1: Absolutely. And um to Marsocks credit, that was something I think that they did fairly well was they took. They took lessons learned from each other's service component that had been doing this for decades longer than the Marine Corps had, you know. And then they also took lessons learned from their own past with the Raiders in World War II, you know, how they yeah. how they did things, how the Rangers did things. And then we spoke briefly about the lessons learned from special forces. They, incorpor- they incorporated that. And then, let's see, after that, after that debacle was over, you were just like, oh, thank goodness, no more bush. You know, like, we can, I don't know, move on. And then next phase was special reconnaissance. And I remember the the officer in charge of that phase coming in, and he he gave us a little pep talk, and he was like, the best way. Well, first, he was like, congratulations, you guys just got done with, with Raider Spirit. And then he goes on this diatribe about how the best way to test the metal of your men is to throw them back in the bush after you they just got out of it, and we're all just like, "Oh no, it was terrible." Yeah, so now we did special reconnaissance, and exactly um, what you needed to hear. Yeah, I was like, "Oh, fantastic!" Yes, um, but that was more of all the report formats, you know, cameras sending back pictures uh we did both urban and greenside plain clothed and out in the out in the camp lejeune wilderness again you know and uh yeah it was just more more suck factor but different kind of suck factor now you had a, a ruck 100 pound ruck full of lightweight camera equipment and now you, just taking pictures, playing playing birdwatcher out there in the out there in the wilderness. So um, that was phase two, and again there was like a big a big culminating exercise at the end of that to incorporating all those different things, and then moving on to phase three. This was everyone's favorite phase because this was the direct action phase. You know, I had a grand old time there. Uh, it was basically just one big shooting package. Spent. How long was it? I think four or five weeks on the range alone. Uh, No, maybe it was three or four weeks on, on the range. Just rifle and pistol work all day, every day. Thousands of rounds, like the amount of money that they spent on training, you know. And a lot of it just wasn't the arbitrary, we call it square bay shooting in the Marine Corps, where it's just, you know, on my call, two shots to the body, one shot to the head. Yeah target you know then you're just blowing rounds down range as fast as you can a lot of it was really good skill building exercise where they're working on hand speed getting the pistol out of the holster as fast as you can Um, breaking down the draw breaking down the reload and then different tips and tricks for shouldering the rifle faster acquiring targets eye movement head movement and then then um, we got into like barricade shooting and all kinds of different stuff and that that was a lot of fun then after the flat range was over we moved into housework you know the the old kill house and just drilling cqb cqb for eight nine ten hours a day um first it was one room at a time and it just progressed eventually until maybe uh we were doing at the very end I remember in the culminating exercise, we'd progressed to the point where we were doing uh, simultaneous hits on a structure inside a, inside a village from helicopters and, and vehicles at the same time uh, with breaching. And it was, it was fairly impressive, like how they constructed that whole phase to progressively move us to, to the point where we were able to smoothly conduct multi-entry raids into a single structure with follow-on targets inside of a inside of a village. Um, and to their credit, I think it's the, I could be mistaken, but I'm, I think it's the only service component that produces a shooter out of their initial training pipeline. Hmm. Really? So, yeah, I, I don't, I think the seals go through something at the end of SQT, I think, um, the bravos do a little bit of it at the end of the at the end of the 18 bravo course.
3: People come straight off the street and and go into Marsoc training, or do you have to serve within the Marine Corps first off? At either reserves or active duty.
1: So to be to submit a package to Marsoc, they um, I don't think it's changed. You have to be at least a corporal, so E4 and you can't be a staff sergeant so corporal to young sergeant is the window that you can submit a package reason being i guess there's you know x number of billets inside of marsoc for um this this rank you know x number of billets for this rank so um the marine corps is not real big on putting a staff sergeant in a sergeant's billet you know even though like the men have no real issue with that the Marine Corps is very structured as far as billeting and rank goes. I know that's caused some some angst in the past, but
0: again, very very similar to how Special Forces in the Army used to be, um, especially back when I was in. They they had it that way because they only needed a set number of positions filled on an annual basis, and they knew that through attrition or whatever that they were going to lose some of those to the training pipeline. to to limit that it was an e4 with two years minimum active duty service and then i think you couldn't be like you said an e6 with over eight or ten i can't remember what the window was at that time frame again sounds very similar to help narrow that down but as you know the army then especially today needs special forces so bad they created the 18 x-ray program and you can come right off the streets which is probably why scott asked that question
1: right right um I know, I know the seals. They take kids right off the street. Special forces does as well, but um, I think Marsocks holding strong where you need fleet experience to before you. I've can never
3: understood passengers. that really coming straight off the street and going into um, a high speed role like that. You know, you, you, you got to have some kind of experience really, and it. it I, I don't really get it, and, and that's the way we do it in the UK. You know, you 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 can't go directly into. Um, Um, SAS or SBS Um, straight off the street you've got got to have experience Uh, and it it varies on kind of four to five years experience they recommend and they they actually fail people on experience wise. so you can get what's called a stand up fail and go through the entire selection process and they can stand you up at the end and say sorry you failed based on lack of experience and you, you can get to go and do it all again
0: <laughs> oh, God. they do. They don't tell, tell them yeah, that at terrible. the very beginning. How lovely is that? That's great. Yeah. I, I know
3: somebody and, did it twice and had a up stand up failing both times.
0: Oh
2: no, That's miserable.
1: Uh, it is. um I, I I agree with with that approach of doing things. You know, um it allows for a certain like foundational experience in the military. Um, I think it does a lot for the mentality of the individual coming in as well. Um, It's not to take anything away from the 18 x-ray program. I went to 18 Charlie. So I I, I met a lot of, a lot of guys who came in through the 18 x-ray program and good people, you know, good. They made solid SF soldiers after they went through the whole thing. But that being said, there were a lot of guys that, in my humble opinion, I don't think they quite knew what they were getting themselves into. Mm-hmm. And, and it kind of showed, um, I,
3: I could see benefits in it, you know, and you come in in straight off the street and you're, you're a fresh sponge ready to absorb everything they throw at you. And, and they, they build your habits based on what they want. Whereas, you know, in, in the conventional forces, you can pick up bad habits that they've got to beat out of you again. And, and, Sure. How they want to do it. So I, I can definitely see the the pros and cons of, of it. But we we do something slightly different in in terms of what you was just saying as well, Dan. So in in terms of rank, so if you go through SF selection in the UK, you go straight back to trooper. So. You, everybody starts at the bottom of the teams and works their way up within the SF unit.
0: Wow. So nice. That's crazy. So pay-wise, everything, you may have been making a whole... No? no?
3: Uh, so pay, pay is different, I think. So you, you get your SF um, um, allowance, if you like, on top of your rank pay, I think. But your, your rank structure within the unit goes back to trooper, and then you, you work through. Um, but I, I, th- I think the pickup speeds is a lot quicker. Obviously, if if you was coming in from um, I don't know a sergeant or something, and you go back to trooper, then as as long as you you know are doing a good job within teams, you'll you'll move through fairly quickly. I think.
1: Now that you mention it, I um, I met a Australian sniper um, who something similar happened to him. Um, I forget what rank he was at, but he wanted to move to the their, their sniper section, and the only way he could do it was give up a couple of stripes, and so he didn't. He didn't hesitate. He's like, "Yep, let's do this." And I don't think he started quite at square one, but he had to give up a couple, a couple stripes to do it, and
3: yeah. he yeah. was happy to do it. I think within our SF community, it isn't kind of rank or, or possibly even pay, motivated. You know, the, the guys want to go and join. The, uh, the SF teams to to be part of that community and to, to do that tier one job and you know coming down a rank or, or two is, is irrelevant really you, you still get paid but you get to do a job that's completely different to the rank you was doing anyway so that's 100%. The kind of a motivating factor
1: 100 percent to, and to go off of what you were saying um, earlier um, so so the seals take people off the street as well they might be stuck between a rock and a hard place. Again, not taking anything away from them, um, but they are literally, so Like yes, they're a, they're a sponge, but they have literally no, I'll say infantry skills to, to build off of like being NSW does not correspond to anything else in the Navy. And so like they have to, they have to work extra hard to build these small unit tactics you know, weapons manipulation stuff like that, in order to be a fundamental part of the team. And uh, I don't know. I, th- I think it goes like it works well for some of the guys, but in my mind, kind of kind of behind the power curve in in that respect. Just to try and build up the foundational skills that someone someone in the infantry going into SF or MARSOC already has,
0: you know. You got Rangers, you got SF, you got Marsoc, you got Recon. There's a lot of people tripping over each other. Seals.
1: I think that's a good way to put it. There's um, this war has this GWAT has um, the needs have been so vast to do many of the same the same mission sets that the fundamental and doctrinal, um, uh, I guess, tasks that that each each service component has done in the past, those kind of all got pushed to the side, and they've had to almost re-gear in order to meet the mission requirements that's faced downrange.
0: It's money. It's more not mission. It's probably more money and relevance driven. I mean, because there's a conversation that happens a lot about why do we need all of these different special operators, and so everybody chases the same money, and everybody tries to show their relevance. It's not always mission-based, I don't think.
1: I would say it's a healthy dose of both um, in that regard. Relevancy, definitely, definitely. But um, take, for instance, the village stability operations in Afghanistan, you know, setting up, training a small force and trying to establish um, security within a small bubble around that village. So many places were, were identified that doctrinally, I think that that fits special forces much better than um many of the the other service components before marsoc came into the picture um and so special forces in addition to all of their other their commitments across the globe um, yeah like they just couldn't meet all of the requirements so that's where you start to get some of the the mission overlap you were talking about where i mean no no seal team is going to be doing a over uh, beach landing in afghanistan but if we just re-gear them a little bit they can take over a vso and then Marsak came into the picture they can definitely do vso um, and that that feeds heavily into the relevancy with more relevancy comes more money so i think you're more money for training you know and things of that nature.
0: I think it's all in the same cycle. It's just a matter of which one, you know, like, I, you know what I mean? I think we'd all agree yeah. with that is to, which, yeah. Yeah. the old
3: self-licking ice cream cone. Yeah. yeah. You know? I think your size, the, the American military, the, 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 the pure size of it allows you to diversify and, and break down and have those specialties units created then where the British military for example doesn't have the size that you have so historically we had the SAS which was predominantly the army, the SBS which was predominantly the marines um, and I think it was 2006 they then merged under the special forces command and people started to go from the army into the SBS uh, and vice versa from the marines uh, over to the SAS um, but within those units then they have all the different specialties that you guys tend to have units uh, to do. so within each unit they have mountain troop um, air troop and and they all live within the same squadron so and then they rotate round as well and so guys get the the experience and have a stint. Uh, doing a specialty such as mountain warfare or um, counterterrorism or whatever it might be, and then rotate round. So the longer time you spend in um, the SF world, you gain all those specialties to that high degree because you're spending a lot of time within um, that troop. Then, uh, but you know, you guys, because of your size, you've got the ability to to say, well, actually, we'll dedicate an entire unit to doing. Indeed,
0: special I don't know that that was necessarily true 25, 30 years ago. I think it was clearly defined. I think there were clearly defined roles for every uh, organization under U.S. Special Operations Command. And I think it's been since the GWAP period that, you know, we've seen a lot of the overlap that is occurring within special operations. And a lot of it, you know, again, it goes back to that. Is it is it mission driven? Is it money driven? Is it organizations trying to build relevance within their own um their own force you know so navy's trying to do that with the SILs, marines doing that with marsoc army's doing that with rangers and sf you know green beret so you know and then you have the air force that air force special operations that is also in this whole mix with pjs and and all of that so you you have a lot of that bit of overlap again it's mission it's money it's relevance everybody's wanting to play in that same space
1: Definitely a part of it. There are some over some some overarching core SOCOM mission sets that everyone has their their key specialty. You know, like SEALs, um, maritime, Army, land based. You know, uh, yeah. but there are some 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 core SOCOM mission sets that like they triaged what was going on in, in the world, Iraq, Afghanistan. We need to narrow in on on this core mission set under SOCOM, and that's just. Without giving up too much of our other commitments across the globe, you know, like, but definitely something to be said with having a a military large enough where we can fight a war on two fronts and then still maintaining our geographical alignment across across the force and still meet the vast majority of those of those commitments. So as maybe well.
0: maybe we look at it. As you mentioned earlier, Dan, you know about Marsoc and how one of the things that you know the Marine Corps did do was create through their um, pipeline and their qualification course is the ability to be a team player. And maybe that's more of what we've created here instead of an us versus them type of mentality. Um, we really do have similar mission sets. We do cross overlaps. let's go ahead and embrace that, and let's just say that moving forward to your point, we all are trained in such a way that we can fight on multiple fronts. Now, we, we you know, a lot of people say that the the opportunity for us to fight in multiple theaters is pretty much gone. We're more in a, a small um, type of, you know, engagement type of tactics and warfare moving forward. I think there is some advantage for all of these different services, in my opinion, to have kind of a blend and hodgepodge. That, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Because then you can fight on multiple fronts if need be, if the mission arises.
1: Sure, absolutely, um, and, and and Marsocs kind of—I'm not going to say the the exception to the rule, but um, drawing heavily on Marsocs roots from reconnaissance and force reconnaissance, um, they're almost a hybrid entity of SF and SEALs. Very good at at maritime um operations whether it's um zodiac based small unit tactics stuff like that VSS, you know visit search board and seizure um i think i got that mixed up visit board search and seizure um or w- whether it's unconventional warfare you know traditionally a task that that went to army special forces like well versed in both um, and they draw and they drew heavily and, st- and continue to draw heavily on lessons learned from from like sister services and things like that.
0: Um, so maybe this would be a good opportunity then, because you touched on it a bit, but maybe we should differentiate uh, between, say, Recon and MARSOC, because I think there are people that go, okay, what's the difference here, and, and what are the similarities? And maybe you can kind of touch on that, especially you, Christian, since you're coming from one side of it. And, of course, Dan, you came from one and then went to the other.
1: Absolutely. Um, So if you look at some of the some of the fundamental mission taskings of both organizations, um, to a large extent, not 100 percent across the board, um, there is some overlap um, as far as, you know, um, maritime operations, VBSS, um, reconnaissance, deep reconnaissance, you know, things of that nature limited scale raids, battle shaping or battle space shaping. It's not a question of stealing missions from one organization to give to another. It's more of, you have to think of it as who are you working for? Um, battalion or reconnaissance, battalion, um, doctrinally is the eyes and ears of the infantry ground force commander. Um, Like you have, he needs to know what's going on, you know, like what he's heading into. Um, And that is battalion reconnaissance, um, working with the infantry. Again, going back to doctrine, everyone in the Marine Corps works for the 0311. It's just the way it is. Um, I think it works very well in that kind of a fight. Um, Forced reconnaissance, they work for the Mew commander, the Marine Expeditionary Unit. They they give him um, the special operations capability, um, which is why they get more more funding to train to more demanding and diverse mission sets. Whatever the Mew may come across, whatever kind of situation they may be they, they, they may encounter, uh, that's something that they have to be prepared for. And to add adec- to be adequately prepared, they need the funding to train to those contingencies. Um, MARSOC, yes, it belongs to or it it is a marine service component. It is a marine service component under SOCOM. So it is, it answers to SOCOM. Um, it doesn't get its mission taskings from the Marine Corps. That's not to say that they won't support conventional marine units, you know, Right. Oftentimes they will, but it's mission taskings come from SOCOM and then it gets broken down farther to whatever geographic combatant command um, they are specifically aligned to. So
0: if we take it outside the Marines now, then how would that different? How, how would MARSOC be different from, say, Army Rangers and from SF? And most people probably listening know the difference between Army Rangers and SF but it'll be interesting for you to kind of explain how MARSOC, as we talked about earlier, is a bit of each, a hybrid, but how does the mission set differ? Many of the mission sets um, remain the same. Um,
1: I only know a handful of Rangers and never having worked with them overseas, I would say that they're very direct action centric. Airfield seizure, um, very, very aggressive. Um, Now, Marsoc and Special Forces there is a significant amount of mission overlap there um, and I think this kind of goes back to Marsoc trying to find its identity you know I, I remember there was significant talk about which which niche within within socom is Marsoc going to fill and they were they were trying to figure that out because I mean they weren't quite sure which direction they were going to take it so that's why they took or still take many missions that traditionally would would have gone to army special forces you know i've been out of out of touch with them uh, going on two years now so uh, i'm not real spun up on on which direction they're taking it but during my time there uh, I, i i do know that army special forces was was very task saturated so it wasn't necessarily a bad thing that Marsok was was taking missions that, if you look at it from a doctrinal point of view, would have gone to Army Special Forces, you know. Um, I, and I think that that goes to speak a lot to the, the direction that warfare is going these days. Um, we're, at least the past roughly 20 years, they've moved away from, you know, obviously the tank columns, you know, and the division-level assaults. And they've had to break it down into... Uh, small units, whether it's an infantry squad here and an infantry squad there, or uh, an ODA here, a SEAL team there. Um, Large-scale macro warfare doesn't—it's not making the cut since we're we've been fighting an organization that's so decentralized. You know, you can't you can't take down the Taliban, for instance, with a tank column. You have to get in there know the people know the landscape the human terrain that's a huge one and that is a type of warfare that is infinitely better suited to a small unit um, much more personal kind of kind of warfare. Yeah. If that makes
0: sense. Yeah, it does. No, and it's very similar to like SF in, the, in terms of team size and stuff. So if I ran down through the, these and I said, okay, so MARSOC, you're doing unconventional warfare. Are you doing foreign internal defense? Are you doing direct action, counterinsurgency, uh, special reconnaissance, counterterrorism, information operations, counterproliferation of WMD or security force assistance? Sounds like you're going to pretty much check every one of those boxes.
1: The vast majority of them, yes, some more than others. Um, Counter proliferation, almost zero to none. You know, that's generally a varsity level tasking. You know, yeah, and and the amount of training that training that goes into being a competent force for something like that, um, there's not many people that are well suited to do it to do it well at the white soft level. You know, um, and again, there's there's other other or organizations that are infinitely better suited to do that because um, that's one of those high stakes mission sets like you can't you can't train to be just good enough you know like for that you you better damn well know that you're able to accomplish the mission so um, but unconventional warfare foreign internal defense um, those are two of the huge ones that that MARSOC is, is taking over. And sometimes there's some overlap between foreign internal defense and and into, like, combat foreign internal defense, you know, where you actually have a partner force and, like, you trained them up and now you're going to show them how to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, those more and more as we progress through um, this type of warfare, those are more and more of the... The, the mission sets that are going to become available. And I think a key, a key, um, so, uh, um, the I'm trying to think of the name of it. The army just came out with a, with a unit solely dedicated to what's essentially foreign internal defense. That's fair. Oh, there it is. Yeah. 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 And that speaks volumes to how much of that mission set is going to be coming down the pipe,
0: you know? We won't get too much deep into that on this episode because I, I can tell you that that was uh, kind of a thorn in the side of a lot of special forces guys. A
1: hundred percent,
0: especially 100%. yeah, especially when they decided to create uh, a flash and a in a oh, man. a patch. <laughs> I a, wasn't gonna
1: bring that up in but a Bray. Yes, exactly. <laughs>
0: yes, well, they, they
2: love that yeah I mean, whole, oh, like, oh you guys are the, like s fab then right yeah
0: oh man the memes that came <laughs> yeah. out a couple years ago were unbelievable uh, priceless so me,
2: yes priceless
0: um. Well, Dan, I appreciate you coming on, man, and sharing this whole pipeline with us because I think a lot of people have been asking questions about the very thing that you just covered and some of the differences. And I'm sure Christian, even on you know your social media, you get asked a lot about what the differences are between Recon and uh, Marsoc. It gets you know asked a lot all over the place. Oh and- yeah. Yeah. And and without having somebody that went down through that pipeline that can describe the differences and of course, you know, deployed with them and everything else, it's a lot it's a lot different. You're gonna get a different response. But um, you know, again, I, I knew some of the humble beginnings because I knew some of the guys that were engaged in the startup of Marsoc, but that was a long time ago. And so, you know, as with any organization, as you mentioned re- early on the show, it evolves. And what it's evolved to today and what you guys continue to evolve it to, um, it's going to keep uh, morphing and changing. I will say that when you guys came out with the, the new MARSOC, uh badge and everything, I thought that's pretty badass, by the way. Um, I th- I thought it was a great representation of at least an organization and differentiating, you know, that, that set.
1: Absolutely. And I I think it was something that simply had to be done. I mean, within the Marine Corps, there's a strong mentality. And I think Christian, you can, you can second me on this, but there's, there's a a very strong mentality of nobody is special, you know, and to have a badge that signifies um, a group of individuals who were you know, who are different than everyone else i mean it, it was it was bad enough that recon got to wear dual cool you know the old jump and dive bubble but uh to have another badge like no way no way not on my watch you know but no <laughs> it, i'm definitely glad um that the uh the commander of socom convinced the the um Commandant of the Marine Corps to allow it, you know, and I, I remember going through taking different polls, if you will, um, surveys as to which design we were going to go with. And I think all things being considered equal, I think the end product was actually pretty damn cool. Yeah, so.
0: Now, it did turn out really cool. And, of course, in a world where everybody gets a trinket or we create some type of badge so that somebody has something to display on their uniform or give them a medal, um, you know, so that we can each have a medal in something when you graduate from basic training. You know, so, I mean, everybody gets something like that. And in that type of age, and like you said, with the Marine Corps, where typically you just had U.S. Marine and that was it. Um, It's sort of like being on a football team and not having your name on the back of the jersey. It's not important, you know. know. There needs
2: to be separation.
0: Yeah. And and so, you know, to have now a different level of a a type of warrior and operator and everything, I think it was deserved. I'm sure there's going to be Marines out there that, you know, I didn't hear any, but I'm sure that there are probably old school Marines that didn't particularly like that. But, um, again, for coming out with a design, I thought they hit a home run with that bad boy.
1: Definitely. Um, two things. I I remember being at Hawk um, and wearing dual cool initially. And, like, it worked out great for me because I would get hemmed up for a bad haircut or long sideburns or something. And the old first sergeant would be like, you recon guys are out of control. Like, yes. Yes, we are. You know, and he would go to – Second recon or wherever to try and hunt down my first sergeant. Never found him, but um, <laughs> that worked out pretty well for me on a lot of occasions. But um, I, I do like the throwback to the original Raiders, where the where the, the War Eagle is holding the original Raider patch. I just I just wish that um, whichever authorizing entity was in charge had allowed the the skull in the middle of the Southern cross yeah. on the badge itself. You know, that, that I think if they had allowed that, no complaints, you know, but again, I'm just thankful that we actually did get a badge to, to allow that, that delineation as, as Christian pointed out, you know, and it was, it, it's definitely well-deserved. Lots of hard work went into it and I'm, I'm grateful for it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Again, thank you for coming on the show, Dan. I really appreciate it and uh, sharing your story and journey and stuff. We're going to have to have you back so that you can tell us some good stories and stuff.
1: Again, I appreciate you for having me on and it was absolutely my pleasure. So again, like I'm looking forward to whenever next time is. So thank you very much.